42 through the end of the chapter. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. We hear the inspired word of God. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last, Adam, was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthly. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthly, such are also those, they that are earthly. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, so shall we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We read this in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 17, found on the back of our Psalters on page 10. Lord's Day 17, question and answer 45. What doth the resurrection of Christ profit us? First, by his resurrection he has overcome death, that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he had purchased for us by his death. Secondly, we are also by his power raised up to a new life. And lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we come this evening to the first step of Christ's exaltation as set forth in the fifth article of the Apostles' Creed. The third day, 
he rose again from the dead. We noted Jesus' humiliation. He was humbled unto death and hell. He now is exalted, and we see that gradual exaltation and increase in glory. His resurrection, his ascension, his being seated at God's right hand, and then his return in glory. The first step is his resurrection. It's very striking that the catechism is so limited with regard to its treatment of the resurrection. It simply addresses the resurrection from the perspective of its prophet. What doth the resurrection of Christ profit us? There's no question in the mind of the catechism concerning the legitimacy of the resurrection. The catechism immediately jumps to the benefit of the resurrection for God's people. The brevity of the catechism in that regard and its silence regarding all the denials of the resurrection has been explained as a weakness. But is it really a weakness? Is it not, in a sense, a matter of strength that the perspective of the catechism is not to give any time to the scoffers, to the mockers? In its characteristically beautiful manner, the catechism immediately gets to the heart of the matter. What is the comfort for the believer in the power of the resurrection? And that becomes the focus, the comfort, the benefit of the resurrection for us God's children. We look at it simply as the resurrection of Jesus Christ, noting that death is overcome. Secondly, that there is the new life. And finally, noting our glorious resurrection. The catechism addresses three things. First, by his resurrection, he overcomes death, that he might make us partakers of righteousness. Secondly, that we are by his power raised to a new life. And thirdly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. We look at the first. By his resurrection, he overcame death. This is the first most important truth that is mentioned concerning the resurrection. It's a truth that's so glorious, so wonderful, that this truth needs to be proclaimed from the housetops. Death has been overcome. Death is the curse of sin on mankind. And that curse affects the whole of the creation. We noted this last time. Everything on earth must die as a result of the curse of God. The soul that sins, that soul must die. And it's not enough just to die. Death is the curse of God, which is everlasting destruction in hell. Now, you children know there were a couple of men who escaped death. For sure, Elijah and Enoch. But these men, even though they slipped away and did not have to die, nevertheless did not overcome death. Now we're given an insight into the manner in which death was overcome. In order for there to be a victory, there needs to be a battle. And in that battle, one needs to overcome. Now we followed that battle as we traced Jesus' humiliation. The cross claimed his life. His body was placed in the grave. Death seemed to overcome him. But it could not, and it did not. Death could not hold him. The grave could not contain him. And the result is that death finally had to confess Jesus 
was more powerful than itself. For the first time in history, death had to confess a man was stronger than death. And that man was able to overcome death. Neither Enoch nor Elijah were able to overcome. Neither were involved in a battle. But Jesus was involved in a battle. An intense battle. Death had been affecting the human race since Adam and Eve. Death had destroyed generation after generation. Death was no respecter of persons. Destroying old as well as young. But now the rule of death over creation would come to an end. Death comes face to face with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ conquers death. On the third day, he arose. And that's the refrain that we read. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus overcame death by the power of the resurrection. The question immediately that rises in our minds is, is death really defeated? Are we not rejoicing perhaps too quickly? Because after all, we still face death. What change really has taken place? Individuals are still dying. God's children are still subject to death. The catechism response is, yes, indeed, death has been overcome. And Christ overcame death by his resurrection. For those who believe in Jesus, the sting of death is gone. Death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 54. All that believers now face is the shadow of death. And we noted this last time. The essence of death has been taken as the essence of death was the suffering of hell. Jesus took that for all those whom he represented. But we must yet die, but death has been transformed, and death is now for God's children a passageway into glory. Death is changed. Psalm 23 talks about the shadow of death. A shadow is not real. The shadow of a mad dog barking angrily and trying to bite you is not going to hurt you and can't hurt you. Death's sting is removed like the sting of a wasp, the sting of a bee, removed and the effect gone. First Thessalonians four fourteen states, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with them. Notice, death is changed into sleep. What a beautiful concept. Jesus really died. He experienced the horror of death in all of its horror. He felt its pain. But those who belong to him now are described as sleeping. To fall asleep is to rest for a while and then to wake up refreshed. Sleep is the link between a tiring day and a new morning. Those who are asleep in Jesus will open their eyes to the eternal light and the glory of heavenly bliss. What a morning that will be. A morning that will involve 
no more evenings. A morning in which we will be able to enjoy the everlasting joy of salvation. The catechism builds on that, that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he had purchased for us by his death. After a victory, there's spoils. And that's the picture here. Jesus fought a fight, he overcame. And now the result is that there's spoils that need to be distributed now to his people. And so he now distributes freely what he earned for us. And he makes us partakers of that glorious victory. He distributes what no man ever had the power to distribute. No man ever will. The greatest treasure is that of righteousness. Romans 4 verse 25 states, He was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. To be justified is to be declared righteous before God. Jesus assumed the full responsibility of our sin, even though he personally had no sin, no guilt of his own. According to that responsibility, he was our mediator. He was worthy of death because he carried that load of sin that belonged to us. Bearing that load willingly, he subjected himself to the deepest pains and sorrows of death, hell itself, where he suffered in pain and agony, the wrath of God toward him. Out of that depth of death, there was only one way. And Jesus was so perfectly obedient that God was able to declare him as our mediator and our savior. He fully satisfied the wrath of God. And he was justified with regard to our sins. Sin and death were connected. Righteousness and life connected. And so when God declared Jesus alive, God declared those in him righteous. No longer worthy of sin and death. Righteous with the perfect righteousness of their mediator, Jesus Christ. That righteousness of Jesus Christ from the dead is the gospel of God. God comes to us and God declares that we are righteous in Christ. The perfect righteousness of Christ applied to our account. What we could never do, what we could never earn, is freely given by our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper puts it so beautifully. He was innocently condemned to death that we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God. Acquitted, set free, declared righteous before God. Jesus Christ came forth out of the waves of death with a glorious treasure, righteousness. And that righteousness was carried in his pierced hands. And freely he gives that gift graciously to all those who are his own so that they might know the wonder of life. He not only earned it for us, he applies it to us by faith. He makes us partakers. We're not merely onlookers, spectators, so that we can view that righteousness and see how glorious and wonderful it is. We're made participants. We confess, I am a partaker of Christ's righteousness. His treasure and His gifts are mine. And I am now justified in His sight. The humbling truth of this Lord's Day is this. 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ was necessary to make me a partaker of that righteousness. I couldn't do anything. There was nothing I could do to make myself righteous. There's nothing you could have done. We are so wretched, so sinful, that we could not do a thing to earn that righteousness. Nor could we take it to ourselves. We needed Christ. And He earned it for us. And we need Christ to apply it to us. If we're malnourished, we can eat. Or we can have a Big Mac or a burger setting before us. But it's not going to help us unless we eat it. The best water is not going to quench our thirst. We need to drink it. Jesus, as the living Savior, not only accomplishes this righteousness, He now gives it to us. He makes us partakers of it. He not only makes us hunger and thirst after it, He satisfies that hungering and thirsting by faith. And He gives us that spiritual mouth of faith by which we partake of His righteousness. Jesus Christ giving us everything that we need in order that we might glorify and praise His name to all eternity. All because of the resurrection. He won the victory. He earned for us that righteousness and now freely He gives it to us. We're also raised by His power to a new life. When we looked at Jesus' death in Lord's Day 16, we noted that by the power of the cross, our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him. That old man is dead. The new man is made alive. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. That's John 5, verses 21 and 24. God takes us and not only gives us to know the righteousness that is in Jesus Christ, we now have been transferred from death into life. We get an understanding of that a bit from the examples that are used in the Bible. The man who was living in Gadarene was given over to demons. And as a result, he was a brute who wandered naked among the tombs, beating himself, cutting himself, and he was a threat to everybody around him. When Christ had compassion on him, what was the fruit? He sat at the feet of Jesus with clothes on and with a good mind. He was the same person and yet hardly able to be recognized. Now what had happened? The devils were cast out and the life of Jesus Christ was implanted within him. He was a new creature in Christ. And as such now, there was a complete transformation that took place. Those who are made new creatures in Christ become new. They live by a different principle. They now act and think differently in the midst of this world. They live for a different goal. They have different ambitions. Now the old is still there. The inclinations of sin are so real that there's times, as the catechism expresses it so beautiful in other Lord's Days, that we struggle. We sometimes wonder, our conscience accusing us, whether we even are converted, whether we even have that new life, that beginning being so small. But every day we experience that battle against the old man. Temptation has such allure yet for us. 
But God works repentance. He works sorrow. And we seek after the things that are good. We desire to live out of that new obedience. We realize that the work isn't going to be finished until God translates us into glory. But that new life is nothing less than the life of Jesus Christ living within us. Christ lives in me and in you. Jesus used the figure of the vine and branches. The life of the vine comes to expression in the branches. Christ lives in his people. His life becoming ours. And what's the marvelous wonder of that? He works in us so that we seek the things that are heavenly, the things that are above. We seek to wash one another's feet. We're willing to be spent for the sake of others. We're given the grace to forgive, to show mercy, to sacrifice, to deny ourselves. The power within the vine expresses itself in the branches so that the branches reflect that life. They become Christ-like. We confess, without Christ, I can do nothing. But with Him, I am able to walk in newness of life. By His power and by His strength, I seek the things that are above. This was the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, verse 10. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. And beloved, that's your and my prayer. To know Christ and to know the power of that resurrection as it lives within me in that new life that's in Him. As it comes to expression as I live unto Him. Our lives are God-directed. That's set forth marvelously in Colossians 3. If you turn with me to Colossians 3, we have there set forth beautifully the manner in which our lives are transformed by the power of the resurrection. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience in the which ye also walked sometime, when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Beloved, this needs to be impressed upon us, We are risen with Christ. And Paul's insisting here, the fact of your resurrection with Christ gives you an entirely new set of priorities. It sets you on a different path. And he identifies those priorities, mortifying those things that are on earth, putting off anger, wrath, malice. Lie not one to another. As the elect of God putting on the new man, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, 
so also do ye. Those who are united to Christ will live in a different way. They remain sinners. They still are sinful as to their nature, but they're sorry for that sin. They flee it. And they seek to live now out of thankfulness to Christ for the wonder of the righteousness and life that is theirs in Him. The Apostle makes a direct connection here between Christ's resurrection and our walk of life. Those who are raised with Christ give evidence of it. They show it in a renewed life. They're righteous in Christ. And as those who have been transformed and given a life that's from above, they live out of that life. They're kind one to another. They don't backbite. They don't slander each other. They don't talk about those who have sinned. Instead, they show love, which covers a multitude of sins. Those who are raised in Christ don't merely recite the Apostles' Creed together. I believe that Jesus arose from the dead. They confess Christ and they give thanks to God for the new life which adorns that confession. A life directed to God and to His glory. And there's the unspeakable, there's the joyous assurance. I am a son of God. I am a daughter of God. Specifically, the apostle is emphasizing here, those who are raised in Christ are not living with judgmental attitudes, condemning attitudes toward fellow saints. They're showing mercy. They're showing kindness. They're showing humility. They're displaying meekness. Those who are raised in Christ aren't walking and living with strong language against one another, cursing and swearing. They're showing compassion. There's no room in the congregation for backbiting, slander, lying, jumping to uncharitable conclusions. We don't just confess we've been raised with Christ, but we treat our fellow believers as also those who with us have been raised with Christ. And that which characterizes our walk and our interaction then one with another is that life that we have in Christ. So that the resurrection is not just a comforting truth for us on our deathbed. This is the motivation for living. This is the explanation for how we live our life every single day. If Christ were still in the grave, this congregation would be plagued with hatred, fornication, uncleanness, evil, covetousness. The apostle previously in 1 Corinthians 15 says, there'd be no sense even to gather as a church. No sense for us to gather and to hear the preaching. The life within us and among us would be an earthly life and we'd be living in sin, directing our thoughts and actions toward the ways of the devil. But Christ arose And by the power of the resurrection, He took us with Him. And He's given us that life that is from above. And we can never live separate from Him. We're dependent on Him. We live out of Him. And that life that rules us is the life of Jesus Christ and the wonder of His love. This resurrection life, beloved, involves for us then justification and sanctification. And the Catechism will delve into that in more detail. By justification, we're given to know the righteousness that is ours in Jesus Christ. Jesus earned that righteousness as a free gift. God declares us now righteous in Him, apart from anything 
that we've ever accomplished or done. Sanctification is the wonder by which God goes to work in us, causing us to walk and to live out of that righteousness. He causes us to do good works, which He before ordained that we would walk in. He makes us sensitive to sin, works in us a delight and a desire to live new and holy lives. That sanctification bringing a change to our condition as we're renewed and daily seeking to live unto Him. These two closely working together as we live out of that glorious Righteousness that is ours in Christ. Finally, it's our glorious resurrection. Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. After we're justified and sanctified, there is for us our glorification. The new life that we have in Christ is the resurrection of the soul unto godliness. And when Christ comes again, he's going to give us new bodies reunited with our souls so that we will be raised to a new life in heavenly glory. We need to be raised from the sleep of sin and from the sleep of death. That body that's sown in corruption, in dishonor, a natural body is raised in glory, in power, a spiritual body. Now, of that blessed resurrection of our bodies, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is a pledge that we too will get that renewed body. Up until now, there's never been a man who rose from the dead and stayed alive. Through the Bible times, there were some that were raised from the dead, but then they still succumbed to death later, as Lazarus and others Concerning this wonder of the blessed resurrection, we don't see anything yet. It almost seems unbelievable. How is it that we will be able to live forever in body and soul in heaven? What will that look like? We can't fathom it. We can't conceive it with our earthly minds. Christ can never be conceived of apart from his people. He's the head, we're the body. We will follow where he leads. The head now has been raised. And therefore, the body also will be raised. Now, when that happens, we'll be on Judgment Day. When the trumpet sounds, the graves are opened, and all the bodies will be raised. We know that that won't be a blessed resurrection for all men. Some will be raised unto everlasting death and hell. And we'll deal with that later in Lord's Day 22. We're concerned now with the blessed resurrection of the saints. We believe and we expect that the bodies will be glorified and made like unto the glorious body of Jesus Christ. Now that's true for those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Those who are still living when Christ returns will be changed in a moment. Their weak earthly bodies immediately made like unto the glorious body of Jesus Christ. If we ask, what will these bodies look like? The, body doesn't, the Bible doesn't give us a specific answer. We're given figurative language. One of those figures has to do with an ear of corn in comparison with a corn kennel, a corn kernel. The idea that just as a full ear of grain grows out of a dead seed, so 
our glorified body will develop out of that dead body as something of beauty. That which is planted and decays now gives expression to something that's beautiful and something that's glorious. That body will look like the glorified body of Jesus Christ. Matured in Christ because Christ died, arose, and earned that victory for us. The best we can fathom is there will be no feeble individuals in heaven. No incomplete bodies. No small children unable to walk. No elderly with infirmities. In heaven, no development, no growth, no aging. No sickness of mind, of body. No sickness spiritually. It will be somehow the same body and yet a totally different body because food and drink are no longer needed. No longer needed to eat or to drink. No marriage will be needed because the new humanity will be complete. No more need for any more to be added to the full number of the elect. What a glorious day that will be. And that's the assurance The resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Though we die, though our bodies are laid in the grave, they will be raised again like unto that glorious body of Jesus Christ and live forever with our Lord in heaven. In summary then, beloved, there are three glorious benefits to Christ's resurrection. Two treasures already now ours in this life, justification and sanctification. The other given to us after this life, glorification. The natural man finds no appeal in these gifts. He longs after the earthly. He clings for the things that are here below, which perish, which decay. But beloved, Jehovah God works in us the faith by which we seek after the things that are spiritual and heavenly. We hear the gospel, the glorious gospel of the resurrection. And by faith we believe that our Lord Jesus Christ is our righteousness, that He has separated us unto Himself, and that He is preserving and keeping us now with a view to bringing us in body and soul to be with Him in glory to all eternity. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, strengthen us as we live for the things that are spiritual and heavenly. Forgive us of our pursuit of the things of this earth. Strengthen us by hope that we might be focused on Christ, on His glory, and that we might live as those who confess ourselves to be the recipients of the glorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for the faith by which we go forward, knowing and believing the great wonders that Thou hast performed on our behalf. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.